Scent Magazine's belaboured podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Each Friday, we bring you the latest news and analysis from the world of labour. First, the news. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome, everyone, to Belabored Podcast number 41. So in recent months, I'm sure you've heard all about Walmart workers organizing strikes and protests and uh, charging the company with various labor issues. But it turns out that Walmart, with all of its anti-labor tactics, might actually be finally shooting itself in its own foot because it's actually sabotaging its own business. Um, that's according to Inequities Research Firm that, according to Think Progress, gave Walmart an underperform rating in its latest uh, fiscal projection. So it found that Walmart's poor working conditions might actually be coming back to bite them. It says that Walmart U.S.'s relentless focus on cost does seem to have taken some toll on in-store conditions and stock levels, uh, which basically means that this is all the result of understaffing, and they've actually been so poorly staffed that they've actually had trouble moving the goods onto and off of their shelves in an efficient manner. And if you're familiar with the just-in-time retail system, it's really crucial to keep goods moving at a constant pace, so Walmart is definitely undermining its own business. So the report is interesting because it basically says that Walmart's operations are not only bad for workers, but just unsustainable for the company in general. So basically, this is reaffirming what we already know if you listen to this podcast, which is that the business model relies on crappy working conditions and crappy hours. And lately, stores have actually had to resort to hiring temp labor just to maintain decent staffing levels. So what this research firm has told us, and mind you, they're focused on the profitability of the company and not their labor practices. They've actually said that these crappy working conditions are actually responsible for a a huge financial drain. Um, They've also noted that some of the bad publicity and the damage control that Walmart has had to do over these things like um, complaints over its labor violations, um, its union-busting tactics, all that damage control that it's sunk into publicity has actually been a big cost in the company as well. Um, And to put a finer point on it, the report actually notes that some of Walmart's competitors are actually paying their workers much higher wages than Walmart is. So that just goes to show you that this might be one of the rare points when the bottom line of the company and the sustainability for workers actually converges. Who'd have thunk? Um, You see, we're always right here on Belabored. And to prove that we're always right here on Belabored, I... This week, as teachers in Portland are counting down to the walkout day, they are they voted almost unanimously for a strike last week. Um, Portland schools are advertising on Craigslist for replacement workers for that possible strike. Portland school bus drivers might also go on strike. And Medford, Oregon teachers are already on strike. Um, and now teachers in St. Paul, Minnesota, will be taking a strike vote on February 24th. Um, St. Paul, notably, was the site of the nation's first teacher strike in 1946. So teacher strike wave, um, like Chicago's teachers famously did, as we've discussed on this podcast many, many times, most notably in episode one with Karen Lewis of the Chicago Teachers Union. The teachers in these cities are focusing on issues of class size, standardized testing, access to pre-kindergarten, and hiring more non-teacher support staff like nurses, librarians, counselors. Um, 
These strike votes are coming at a time when teachers unions are facing both historic attacks and renewed vigor and support within the unions as students and parents are beginning to organize against standardized testing and in support of the teachers. I predicted in our year-end episode, this is where I brag about being always right, that public schools organizing would be where exciting things were happening in 2014, but even I wasn't expecting that we'd be proved right so quickly. Um, I've been talking to some folks in Portland, and as always, we'd love to hear from you listeners if you're in Portland or St. Paul or Medford or anywhere your local teachers union is taking action. You can tweet at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. Um, so it looks like for teachers and Walmart, the chickens are finally coming home to roost after all that mistreatment. So um, speaking of coming home to roost, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit ruled recently that the Department of Labor's H-2B visa wage methodology regulation is, uh, well, valid and that uh, corporations have no right to try to block uh, the prevailing wage rules from going through. So basically what this means is that we have this guest worker program that has essentially imported a lot of low-wage laborers from other countries to come and do work in industries like uh, landscaping, uh, different forms of uh, you know seafood cannery work, um, working on hotels, doing seasonal jobs like that. And for a very, very long time, um, companies have been able to uh, pay these workers poverty wages, and the industry was pretty poorly regulated. What's happened now is uh, there's been a lawsuit, and the Third Circuit Court of Appeals basically struck down the corporation's claims that the Labor Department had no right to uh, set these things called prevailing wages. Um, so basically, industry was saying the Labor Department has no right to do its job. I mean, if, if there's no federal agency that has the right to regulate wages, I'm not really sure what the entire point of the Department of Labor is. But um, according to the logic of the lawsuit, um, these workers uh, were supposed to uh, you know, be completely unregulated and companies were supposed to be able to pay them wages that undercut prevailing wages in the sector for both U.S. and for guest workers. So what this ruling says is that uh, the Labor Department can go forward with its wage laws. Um, it's one incremental victory that validates the tireless efforts of many guest workers to effectively raise standards across the industry for both U.S. workers and for foreign-born workers who come to this country on temporary visas. There are still a number of obstacles that stand in the way of real reform of the guest worker program. Most notably, a com you know what we really need is a complete overhaul of the entire immigration system so that we do not have these inherently unequal programs. And for that, we need congressional action, which does not seem to be in the offing. But in the meantime, at least uh, the Labor Department is uh, able to put in this one incremental reform. And now we actually have a clip from one of the attorneys who worked in the case, Meredith Stewart of the Southern Poverty Law Center, explaining why these guest workers are being exploited so badly and how these new regulations might help and what more needs to be done. So the fundamental issue that this court ruling addresses is whether or not the Department of Labor has the authority to issue rules, make regulations for the H2B program. And the Third Circuit found that they did. They absolutely do have authority to issue rules for the H2B program. And therefore, the 2011 H2B wage rule that they attempted to implement was validly promulgated. This is important because, as we know, the Department of Labor has been issuing regulations for the H-2B program for decades. They've always regulated it, and they're absolutely 
the appropriate agency to do that because they're the agency that has expertise in labor markets. So it really wasn't until the Department of Labor issued a wage rule that would lead to substantial increases for workers that employers decided to challenge their authority to issue any regulations for the program. The guest worker programs, the way they're structured today, just simply can't lead to any sort of equity for U.S. workers or the guest workers who are involved in the program. And, you know, we think that obviously there needs to be a balance so that the H2E workers who come over are protected, but also the U.S. workers who are affected by these programs. And that was Meredith Stewart of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Continuing the Who's on Strike Now portion of the podcast, um, nurses in Altoona, Pennsylvania at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center went on strike this Tuesday in response to what they're calling unfair labor practices. As we hear so often around here, they were fighting cuts to their health care benefit packages, sort of an important thing that you want your nurses to be healthy. Um, and they're calling, as nurses often do, for better nurse-to-patient ratios, meaning nurses would have to take care of fewer patients at a time so they could give more individual attention to each one. Um, oh, and UPMC also wanted to institute a wage freeze. Meanwhile, as also often happens when nurses go on a one-day strike, management at UPMC turned around and locked them out for the rest of the week as they have hired replacement workers, who they cannot, of course, just hire for one day, so they say. The nurses say that the hospital is paying replacement workers $50 an hour, which is more than the regular nurses make, plus airfare and lodging to bring them into town, and that that's money that could have been spent avoiding a strike in the first place by agreeing to pay the teachers a, you know, or the nurses, excuse me, a cost of living raise. Weird, right? The hospital is also hiring extra security and police to apparently protect patients from the nurses who spend their time taking care of them. It's no secret to longtime podcast listeners that I am especially fascinated with care worker strikes because the rhetoric thrown at them is very special. How dare you demand anything for yourself, like wages that keep up with the cost of inflation? You don't care about your patients or your students, even though the things you're demanding, like smaller classes and lower nurse-to-patient ratios, will actually help you provide better care for those students or patients. You're not important enough to pay a decent salary, but too important to be allowed to walk out the door. And, of course, how dare you go on strike and risk your patient's health, but now that you're ready to come back, we're going to lock you out for longer and keep risking those patients' health. But, on the other side of that, when nurses and teachers take action and organize in the community, they are quite often able to get a lot of support for their actions. The nurses held a candlelight vigil outside the hospital. They are still on the picket lines as we record this because they have been locked out. We will bring you updates on this, I'm sure. And once again, if you are one of these nurses or one of their supporters, please let us know. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. So we've talked a little bit about the post office on this podcast before. This week we're going to explore a fascinating idea that actually has a long history in this country of what could be done to make the post office better, make it more financially solvent, and uh, help fix our inequality problem. Um, we're joined by Dave Dayan, an independent journalist who writes for Salon, The New Republic, and Pacific Standard Magazine, where he wrote a piece last year about bringing back postal banking. So, Dave, lately we've heard a lot about the budget crisis supposedly facing the Postal Service. Um, many conservatives have actually called for mass closures of post offices and of privatization as a 
potential solution. They dismissed the mail system as obsolete and inefficient. But uh, for a while now, you've been writing about a different idea about how to save the post office, which is branching into the financial industry and offering low-cost banking services, perhaps even becoming a full-scale bank. So why, at a time when Washington seems to be calling for huge cuts to this public institution, are you calling for an expansion of the sector? Well, because uh, there are a few reasons. I mean, number one, uh, in an age of where email is prominent, uh, the post office does need to innovate a little bit to maintain uh, the level of service that it, it currently gives. And uh, banking is a, a, a decent way to do that. There's a history there. The USPS uh, still does money orders uh, to the tune of two, $22 billion in 2011. And from 1911 to 1967, uh, there was such a thing as a postal savings account. Up to 4 million people had a savings account at the post office uh, at its height. So there is a, a history of delivering financial services through the post office, in fact, it's very popular within immigrant communities. International money transfers are one of the large uh, businesses that the uh, post office provides. The second reason is that we have this major problem with underserved communities having little or no access to financial services. The latest numbers from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation show that one in four households has either little or no access to financial services. They're either underbanked or they're just completely unbanked. And as a result, they have to resort to very shady operations like check cashing stores, payday lenders, pawn shops, and the like. In our current age, it's very difficult to move up the ladder in society and, and to really function without access to financial services. The post office's mission to promote commerce and to uh, promote, uh, you know, uh, universal service, all of that fits into delivering financial services to these very communities. And they have a presence in these communities. Fifty-eight percent of all post office branches are in zip codes with zero or one bank branches. So they have a physical presence. There are 35,000 post office branches nationwide. Uh, they already have teller service. They even have a prepaid phone, uh, prepaid card, debit card deal with American Express. Uh, so they are well positioned to promote financial inclusion, promote savings, and lift up some of these communities that, that the regular banking, traditional banking industry is leaving behind, and uh, communities that are being gouged by these very shady operators. So uh, there are a lot of wins here, and uh, it, it has the potential to stabilize post office finances while also uh, uh, solving a lot of other societal problems. Yeah. So you've written also recently about um, the biggest banks moving out of the kind of everyday banking services that most people who are listening to this podcast probably think of as what banks do. What kind of incentive would postal banking provide for either for those banks to do a better job at that or just to get out of it entirely? Well, uh, I, I believe that the large Wall Street mega banks really don't see deposit taking as, as part of their core business anymore, uh, and, and certainly not smaller loans. And 
those services are being pushed off into more and more dangerous corners of our financial system, particularly uh, what is known as shadow banking, which is uh, hedge funds and, and, and special purpose vehicles and, and these, these weird sources of funding that increasingly even small businesses have to go to uh, in order to fund their operations. So uh, postal banking is more of a consumer-facing idea than, than something that a business would be started on. But I think the key here is that it offers an opportunity for uh, – it's almost a sort of a, sh a second, secondary attempt at regulation uh, of the cashing, payday lender kind of market, the alternative financial services market. Uh, instead of trying to, to run a Red Queen's race and track down what exorbitant fees and interest that, that these these operators are putting on these very poor communities, you know, I mean, the, the, the FDIC report I mentioned before and as well as the post office inspector general estimated that these uh, communities are paying something like $2,400 a year just to access payday lenders, check cashing stores, and those types of alternative financial services. That is about 10% of their pre-tax income uh, because these communities, the 68 million people who are unbanked and underbanked, make about $25,000 a year. So... Any opportunity that we can get to, to reduce that, that cost, reduce that burden, simply for, for normal financial services that people uh, of, of higher means have no problem accessing, uh, is, a, is a huge win. And if, if banks want to abandon the, those communities, then the post office should step in and, and offer those services. And, and banks shouldn't have a problem with that. If, if they're saying that it's not a profit center for them, that it's, it's a loss leader, that they don't want to uh, pull up stakes out of, out of poor communities, well, then so be it. And, and the government has a role to play in ensuring that there's a level playing field to financial services for everyone in the country. Right. And I think you actually have referred to this as sort of the public option for banking, the, uh, you know, longstanding mm -hmm. public institution that is deeply tied to these communities anyway. So you already have the infrastructure there. You talked about the history of postal banking in the U.S. Can you talk about internationally what is the picture for post offices offering financial services? And, uh, you know, why did it ultimately end in the U.S. even while it still flourishes in so many other countries today? Sure. Uh, most industrialized countries, uh, either now or in the past, have had some form of financial services delivered through the post office. For quite a long time, the number one depository institution in the world was Japan Post, which was Japan's post office and their, their banking services. Uh, newer uh, options in places like New Zealand, uh, Kiwi Bank, uh, or Kiwi Post, I believe it's called, uh, is is one of the most popular ways to do uh, banking in in that country, uh, and it's 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 fairly standard all over the world. That may be why uh, immigrants in this country uh, have flocked traditionally to postal banking uh, in, in both in the 1911 to 1967 period and with international transfers and money orders today. 
So there is a, a very long history there. Uh, the reason why it, it phased out in 1967 in America was the Postal Savings Account was offering, uh, I believe, 2% interest. It was an interest-bearing savings account. And we had a situation with savings and loans where they were there was almost an arms race where they were offering higher and higher interest rates to get business in. They wanted to get that business in so they could sell them mortgages, basically. So uh, they... The post office lost market share uh, to savings and loans and, and other uh, banks uh, and uh, gradually phased out the program. Now we're in a situation where there are millions of people who are being left behind by the traditional banking industry. So it seems proper that post offices would come back in to fill that gap. So what would postal banking mean for the postal workers who would be doing dealing with customers working on this and also um because we've talked about this a little bit before on the podcast um the postal workers pension system of course is sort of constantly blamed for the post office being insolvent um but there's a little weird rule that the post office has to abide by that almost nobody else has to can you talk a little bit about that Sure. Uh, as as I'm sure you've you've talked about, you've talked about the post office on this podcast. Uh, the majority of the financial troubles, so-called financial troubles, of the post office, uh, in the near term at least, really have to do with this obligation that was put down in a 2006 law that requires the postal service to pre-fund all retirement benefits 75 years out. That means they have to collect. Uh, and ensure that they have a store of retirement benefits for workers they have not yet hired, uh, a whole generation of workers that they have not yet hired. This is an obligation that's put on no public agency or private business in the world. So anytime you hear, oh, the post office is mismanaged and, and, and it's losing money and it's insolvent, uh, if any other private business had to deal with a situation where they had to pre-fund their retirement 75 years out, uh, they would be just as insolvent. Uh, for an example, in the most recent uh, financial statement that was authored uh, last week by the Postal Service, they showed uh, that they had a $354 million loss in the fourth quarter. However, if you add in the $1.5 billion payment that they made uh, as part of this obligation they have, uh, they would actually have turned a $1 billion profit in that quarter. And this is true of several of the quarters where they have shown a loss. So it's really that obligation in the near term that needs to be stopped in order for the Postal Service to get back to some measure of profitability. Uh, as far as of what postal banking could do to contribute to that, uh, the IG's report showed that if the Postal Service offered these kinds of non-bank financial services at just a tenth of the cost that uh, payday lenders, check cashing stores, and these types of alternative financial services offered them. Uh, there would be $8.9 billion in revenue annually available to the post office. So obviously that's going to help with their long-term finances. Uh, and it could stop this this tremendous amount of layoffs that we've seen at the Postal Service. Over 125,000 postal workers have been laid off in the last two to three years, and there are plans for another 100,000 uh, by 2015. 
So the way that the Postal Service has dealt with this really stunning uh, obligation that was placed on them in 2006 has by has, they've been trying to do it by shrinking the amount of services by shrinking postal workers by stop, uh, closing uh, some services uh, closing uh, postal uh, branches closing dis- distribution centers uh, trying to cut Saturday delivery uh, and uh, things of that nature the other thing is of course privatization which we'll probably talk about as well uh, where uh, through through a partnership with Staples. Uh, Staples workers are now selling postal products, even though they're non-union and low-wage, and they're basically taking those services away from the post office. If the post office was a main bank branch, uh, presumably that would be something that would not be able to be outsourced because the physical infrastructure would be there at the postal service branch, particularly an ATM card or ATM machine, uh, card readers, things of that nature. So, uh, so I believe that that. that by offering financial services, postal workers would make out very well uh, in, in addition to the, the current suite of services that they already provide. Going back to the Inspector General's report, um, they are essentially proposing some kind of uh, postal banking light system where they would offer what is explicitly called non-bank financial services. Um, can you talk about mm-hmm. what the Inspector General's report says um, why it might advance this debate and also whether we should be um, wary about this kind of uh, parsing of the language, you know, assuring people that it's not going to compete directly with the banks. Well, uh, the IG report showed that there were three types of businesses, three types of offerings that the Postal Service could provide. One is a postal card that would be sort of like an ATM card that you could load up. Uh, perhaps if you had a check, you could do uh, mobile banking on your phone and, and just load that onto your postal card, or you could make deposits and then use that at any business just like you would use your normal debit card. Uh, so that was one option. Uh, you could do online bill pay through that perhaps and, and other various services as well. Uh, the second thing was an interest-bearing checking, uh, or actually an interest-bearing savings account, much like the postal savings account that they had from 1911 to 1967. And so that would offer uh, a little bit of interest. Of course, we're in an almost zero-rate uh, environment right now, so an interest-bearing account might actually have uh, a little more uh, appeal to people than uh, it did maybe in the 1960s. Uh, and finally, uh, the, the idea was for sort of micro-lending, for small loans of the kind that the payday lending industry does, but whereas the payday lending industry offers these loans at up to 300% interest, uh, the Postal Service could do it for a tenth of that or less and still uh, uh, you know, be able to sustain that. So those were the three options. Uh, they, the report does talk about partnering on the back end with current financial services industry uh, participants. Uh, one reason for that would be to uh, acquire FDIC insurance on the deposits. Uh, another reason would be just to have the technical back end and also access to maybe an ATM network of a Citigroup or a J.P. Morgan Chase or Bank of America, which would just... Uh, increased convenience. I 
think there are good reasons for it. There are also reasons to be slightly wary. It's a leadership team. I, I don't see a huge problem there, um, especially if, if we're saying that uh, this isn't really competitive. It, it, it's that the the main financial service industry, the, the traditional banking industry, is pulled out of the communities that the Postal Service wants to offer these services to. And, and so that that's basically the sweet of options that was offered there, and uh, I, I think it uh, has a lot of potential. It was a well-researched report uh, that, that showed pretty directly how uh, communities that lack access to financial services could be targeted and covered and, 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 and given benefits through this program. Mm-hmm. Um- well, just as maybe a, a counterweight to that, um, you did note before that uh, there, you know, there have been efforts towards privatization in the past, and so this would ostensibly be taking place under the same leadership if they are proposing essentially partnering on the back end, even for complementary as opposed to you know full-on banking services. Uh, couldn't that be seen potentially as another path towards backdoor privatization? Well, that would certainly be a concern and, and something you would want to uh, monitor as this was going forward. Uh, I, I think I would be less concerned with that if a leadership team was in place at the Postal Service that uh, wasn't so inclined towards privatization. You know, this Postmaster General, who has put in many of those those initiatives, uh, it's a guy named Patrick Donahue. He was he was uh, put in in 2010 by the USPS Board of Governors. Now you would think, oh, this is Obama's Board of Governors and and Postmaster General. The way it works is that there's a nine member Board of Governors. Uh, those members are supposed to be selected, uh, appointed by by the president, and then they serve for uh, a number of seven-year term, and then they select the postmaster general. It's not a cabinet position anymore. Well, the, the, the truth is is that the pre- uh, Obama has not made any selections, any appointments to the USPS Board of Governors. There are five vacancies on that board right now, a nine-member board. The, only, the remaining four members of the USPS Board of Governors, the people who picked Patrick Donahoe to be the Postmaster General, uh, are all George W. Bush appointees. Uh, and three of them are partisan Republicans. Uh, one was a, an aide to Pete Domenici, the longtime senator from New Mexico and a former state senator from New Mexico. One was the former chairwoman of the Republican Party of Kentucky. And one is a senior advisor to the Carlisle Group and the former CEO of ITT Corporation. So that's who's driving the decision-making at the Postal Service right now. And if the president would simply make some appointments here, uh, presumably uh, or hopefully ones who have uh, a more enlightened uh, experience and, and, and more interested in uh, having the post office provide services uh, that are more innovative, like financial services, uh, I would be less inclined to worry about backdoor privatization. If that isn't the case, if this current board adopts this idea, at least on the trial basis, then it could certainly go into that realm. I don't think the makeup of this board would even entertain the idea. Uh, they have said nothing about the Inspector General's report. They've only said they're reviewing the recommendations. 
uh, and they probably would be very content to let them go. The good news is that there's a growing movement around this. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren has endorsed the practice. A lot of progressive House members who are running in primaries this year have endorsed the idea of the Postal Service offering banking services, non-bank financial services. And I think that the conversation needs to go towards why isn't the president filling the vacancies on the Postal Service Board of Governors that could bring this into reality without having to go through Congress. This is a key of the Inspector General report. The Inspector General said because the Postal Service already offers money orders and international money transfers and things already offering uh, non-bank financial services, they could explore enhancing those through their existing authority. That means you don't have to worry about a gridlock Congress. Uh, you could actually get this done through, uh, you know, regulatory measures through the post office. But you're not going to get that done if you have a right-wing majority running uh, the the policies of the Postal Service. And in that sense, we should not be surprised that shrinking the size of the Postal Service and privatization have been the main ways in which uh, policies have changed in the last four years. You noted that there's really no reasonable reason to oppose this if your agenda truly is equalizing access to financial services, helping the poor, etc. So um, who hates this proposal? Like, what forces in Washington do we expect to see militating against this? Who are the key lobbyists? I mean, if indeed this is not posing a threat to the big banks, then why would they care? And what should we read out of that? The payday lending industry is opposed, and they they represent a fairly substantial lobby, actually, in Washington. That's number one. Uh, Number two, uh, one of the biggest lobbyists that has come out against this was Camden Fine, the head of the Independent Community Bankers Association. Now, the community bankers, they are sort of self-styled envoys. They're the good banks, right? They're the mm-hmm. banks that are in the communities that are that are helping provide this kind of access. But they actually aren't, as the FDIC report clearly shows. Uh, the other issue is that a number of, of large banks are under federal investigation right now for funding the activities of payday lenders. In other words, providing the working capital for businesses like payday lenders and check cashing stores to operate in these communities. So it's kind of a, a, a two-step process. Banks pull up stakes and take their branches out of these communities, keeping them over to these alternative financial services, and then they make money funding those alternative financial services. Yeah, so... To wrap things up, I guess um, I was going to ask you, if, because you sort of put this article out there last year in the first that, well, the first I had heard of it, the first probably many people who aren't old enough to remember postal banking had heard of it. Um, and now all of a sudden, like you said, it's being championed by Elizabeth Warren, who certainly can command headlines just by, you know, blowing her nose these days, it seems. Um, that... <laughs> You know, that what do you think the chances are that this might actually happen? We saw Obama say in the State of the Union that he's going to take every step he can to reduce inequality. Certainly this would be a step that would reduce inequality, but what do you think the chances are of it happening? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if the president is as good as his word about wanting to take steps to reduce inequality, there is perhaps no bigger step than increasing access to financial services for 68 million families, 
and uh, promoting savings for those families and saving those families tens of billions of dollars every year. So uh, as well as stabilizing the finances of the second largest employer, civilian employer in the country, just behind Walmart, and uh, a crucial way for not only uh, the low, lower and moderate income people, but uh, particularly people of color, to move up the financial ladder. Uh, traditionally, uh, the Postal Service has been a very diverse workforce. And so there, there, there are a number of problems that this would solve, and, and according to the Inspector General, it would go through the existing authority uh, in order for it to get done. The president need only make the appointments of people who are interested in this idea, uh, and, and as well as make appointments to the Postal Regulatory Commission, which would have final word, sort of, on whether or not uh, the existing authority could be used to increase non-bank financial services. There are two vacancies on that board, which is a five-member panel, and it has also a Republican majority. So basically, the president has, has let these things go over his first five years of his presidency, but now with the report, with Senator Warren's uh, uh, interest in it, uh, with uh, some other endorsements, uh, this has become an issue that might not be able to be ignored. And uh, hopefully, uh, the president is as good as his word and he'll do the right thing. And now we bring you this week's installment of ARG. I wish I'd written that. Um, where we basically tell you all the stories that we, uh, you know, thought are worth taking a look at. So, uh, my pick for this week is Moshe Marvitz's uh, new piece in The Nation, in which he talks about uh, the uh, perils and promise of the crowdsourced economy. Uh, he talks specifically about Amazon's venture called Mechanical Turk, which we've... Um, uh, we've uh, touched on on the show before as one of this new this new brand of outsourcing uh, through digital technology. Uh, basically, what Mechanical Turk does is it uh, employs people in these tiny little micro tasks that assist people trying to do things like internet searches, trying to uh, do mini sort of clerical things on the web. Um, basically, erecting a virtual industry of uh, tiny little temp workers all doing micro tasks uh, for menial amounts of money. And all this adds up to a potential workforce of, of many thousands of people all doing micro tasks for as little as perhaps $2 an hour. It's a virtually unregulated industry, um, has very little uh, federal oversight, um, and it falls into this trend of basically turning consumers into mini-bosses of sorts and uh, allowing Amazon to completely shed any liability it has as a de facto uh, kind of quasi-boss of these people. Um, they call them themselves a facilitator of a transaction uh, rather than an actual employer. So Amazon is basically just the middleman, even though they're essentially trafficking the low-wage labor of these digital telecommuters. Um, and, you know, these are not, uh, you know, just people who are doing this in their spare time. Some people who are, you know, especially the long-term unemployed, people with disabilities, um, they're basically at home doing this all day 
in all they're basically doing this 24 hours a day um, and it's leading to a significant brain drain you could say by removing these people from you know the the you know above ground regulated workforce and putting them into these really precarious situations in which it's very easy for any old consumer to exploit these people to break you know this tenuous contract and Amazon is basically sort of washing their hands of the whole thing and just making oodles of money off of it anyway. Um, Moshe Marvit then details an, an upcoming uh, major, perhaps, uh, class action lawsuit that is advancing against um, some of these, uh, you know, on behalf of these crowdsourced workers calling for equal rights and basic workplace protections, such as minimum wage over time, and the right to form a union. So uh, stay tuned for that. And of course, if you are one of these crowdsourced workers and, you know, can take time out of your micro tasks to send us a tweet about what's going on with you, please let us know at hashtag belabored. Microtaskers of the world unite. Speaking of digital labor, my piece I wish I'd written this week is by Jennifer Pan at Jacobin, and it is also about digital labor. Um, specifically, she writes about another type of often ignored gendered emotional labor, that of moderating social media accounts. As she points out, the people who moderate Twitter and Facebook for popular brands, publications, are often women, often the lowest person on the totem pole at a particular outlet, and yet often the targets of anger from displeased customers. This means women end up forming a buffer between an outraged public and the people who are actually responsible for the outrage. This gendered labor of creating quote-unquote communities on the web is paid often very little or not at all. In recent weeks, she points out, a campaign for wages for Facebook has sprung up, pointing out the unwaged work that users, again, who are a majority women on these social networks, do to create value for those social networks. Um, Facebook is worth quite a few dollars these days. I don't know if you've heard about that. Um, Pan writes, like wages for housework, the 1970s Marxist feminist movement to which it pays homage Wages for Facebook could play an important role in exposing and ultimately upending the insidious assumption that work for which one receives no pay is done strictly out of love. In the era of the so-called knowledge economy, it's worth thinking about the way much of this quote-unquote knowledge work is really emotional work, and as we all feel compelled to spend more and more time on social media building our brands and having arguments and creating hashtags... It's worth considering who profits from the value that we are creating for free. Not that we take these stories personally or anything. Not that we know anything yeah, about no, this experience. Nothing. Right, right. But I um, think what's also what's important about what uh, Pan's piece does is she really ties together these issues. And I think uh, Moshe Marvitt's piece as well talks about this new workplace that's supposed to be so great right. and so advanced and right. so personalized, right? Yeah. But you can have a hyper-individualization of this labor and at the same time have it be tremendously dehumanizing yeah. at the same time. Yeah. So it's that paradox of uh, the internet. So, right. you know, if you're one of those super smart people and you can think of a solution, it's time for you to step up. Lean in, people. Lean in. Never lean in. We don't believe in leaning <laughs> in here. <laughs> that, thank you for joining us. This has been our 41st podcast, which makes me feel I don't even know what. Um, we will be back next week with more stories from the labor movement. If you have stories for us, as always, tweet at us, hashtag belabored. Send us an email, belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over now. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, produced by Natasha Lewis. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. 
Until next week, join us online using hashtag belaboured. <laughs>